life works the way God intends when we put Him first in every area of our lives. To help us live that life, God gave us the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are principles to live by, principles that bring our relationship to God and each other closer together. They're a way to understand how God wants us to live. These commandments help us love God and love others. The second commandment says don't worship another image, like having more money, an upgraded house, a new car, or longing for more likes on social media. Idolizing these things will only lead us to serving them over God. Well, how weird is this, right? Normally I come out and start the weekend by saying it's great to see you this weekend. Uh, I guess the appropriate introduction this week would be it. I guess it's great for you to see me this weekend, but this is really, really weird. I hope you're safe. I hope that you're staying healthy. Uh, I tell you this, though. One of the things I love about Hope is we can go online and we can say, stay away. We're shutting down. We want you to stay home. We don't want this virus to spread. But you can't stop people at Hope from wanting to come to church. In fact, I, I want to show you a shot of the congregation, of the crowd here this weekend. Can we get a shot of that? That's Neil. That's our sound guy, okay? I'm telling you, you could not keep him away. By the way, I think it's interesting. A lot of people have asked me, Mike, why are we doing this? I mean, there's like 17 cases reported in North Carolina, eight in Wake County. Are, are we overreacting? Well, you know, there's a verse uh, in, the, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, Paul is writing, and he says this, that as Christians that all authority that has been established has been established by God. There is no authority that's been established that hasn't been established by God. And Paul goes on and, and builds the case in Romans chapter 13 that it's our jobs as Christians to honor and respect those that God has placed or established in authority over us. And that's why we sometimes make the decisions we do. For example, uh, when it snows or inch or two, I, I think we should have church. But you know what? When the highway patrol or authorities say, we want you to stay off the road, we don't want you to impede emergency vehicles, we do what we're told, we honor them, and we shut down church. And that's kind of what's going on with the coronavirus. That's why we're not having church this weekend. I do think it's interesting that we, we've shut down church. Uh, we're not going to get to see the ACC or the NCAA tournament, which makes me sad because I wanted to watch Duke win both of those. Fortunately, it went long enough uh, to see Carolina get humiliated again before they shut it down. But I think it's interesting. We're shutting down churches. We're shutting all of these events uh, because we've been asked to shut down any gatherings over 100. Yet, well, unless they change it before you see this, Wake County Schools is still having school when basically they are packed full of Petri dishes with legs. But my point is simply this. Let's just do our part. Let's obey, let's follow the rules, let's wash our hands, let's try to isolate ourselves, let's stay out of large gatherings, and let's see if we can't get through this as quickly as possible so we can get back together. Now, this is the second week of a series that we're involved in. It's called 10. It's a series that's based on the 10 commandments, and we're learning that there's a principle behind each one of these commandments that's gonna help us live out the life that Jesus Christ talked about in Mark chapter 12. If you weren't here last weekend, this is what he said in verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we talked about, this is, this is, this is discussed for us, this is explained to us, described to us in the first four commandments. And then he says this, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And you're going to see in a few weeks, we're going to cover that in commandment number five through commandment number 10. But basically, Jesus said this. You can boil down the entire law, the entire Old Testament into two things. Love God, love your neighbor. That pretty much sums it up. And we're learning what that looks like in this series. By the way, last week we started by looking at commandment number one, you shall have no other God before me. And it's interesting, a lot of you left saying that, that I, I was teaching heresy, basically, that, that Laura was more important than God. I went back and watched my message, and I think you may have dozed off, because this is what I said. Laura is not more important than God. But how I love Laura indicates how important God is in my life. It indicates whether he is number one or whether he's not number one in my life. Because Ephesians chapter five says, I'm to love my wife the same way that Jesus Christ loved the church and he was willing to lay down his life for the church. And so my whole point was, it's not just enough to say that God is the preeminent one in my life, that God is my priority. How we live our lives as Christians indicates whether that's actually true. How you love your spouse, see, indicates. Whether or not you tithe, that indicates if is God more important than your finances. How you serve other people, Jesus said, you'll be great if you serve. That indicates whether God is really number one if he's the priority in your life. Now this weekend, we're gonna be looking at the principle of purity. By the way, let me just say this about the 10 commandments. Seven of the 10 commandments begin with the words, you shall not, you shall not. And I think often when we read the 10 commandments, we think of God as kind of a killjoy, but honestly, it's more like you telling your kids that you don't want them to play in the street, right? Telling your kid uh, that, that you don't want them to run with scissors. You're not telling them those things because you don't want them to have any fun. You're telling them those things because you don't want them to hurt themselves. In the very same way, that's why God gave us the Ten Commandments. At the end of the day, he wants what is best for us. He understands us. He created us for these commandments have been given so that our relationship with God can be better and our relationships with one another can be better. Now, if you were here last weekend, you know that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he gave them to the Jews right after they had spent 430 years as slaves in Egypt. That means that they had been for 430 years living in a pagan land. And we talked about that last week. The land of Egypt had 29 major gods. They had over 2,000 lesser gods. It was a pagan land. But this is what's interesting. The land that God was leading the Hebrew people to, now that they've come out of Egypt, he's leading them to the promised land. It's also a pagan land. And so think about it. They're leaving a pagan land. Guess what? They're going to a pagan land. It's kind of like leaving Los Angeles and going to Las Vegas. I mean, you can't win, right? And so God wants the Israelites to know what they're walking into, what they can expect, what they're going to be facing. He wants them to know what they're going to be dealing with when they get to the promised land, when they get to the land of Canaan. But he also wants them to know how they can avoid getting caught up with all of the false idol worship that they're going to be faced with. So let's look at the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse four, it says, you shall not make for yourself an image. Now we think of idol, but the word is actually image, and that's an important word, and I'm gonna come back to it in just a few minutes. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above on earth below. Now, as I said, the promised land where God is leading these Hebrew people, it's located in the land of Canaan. That means that it is inhabited by a whole lot of Canaanites. 
And the Canaanites worshiped idols. They worshiped carved images more than any people on the face of the earth at this time. For example, they had a God for fertility. They had another idol for rain. They had another idol for prosperity. They probably had an idol for their favorite sports team. So their favorite sports team would be blessed and win. They had idols for everything. In fact, just understand, Israel was the only nation on the planet at this time that didn't worship images of their God. But the Canaanites did. And so this is what God is saying in the second commandment. We've never worshiped images. We're not going to start doing that now. But you'll notice if you've ever read the Old Testament, eventually when the Israelites get into the land of Canaan, when they get into the the promised land, now they have to live with the Canaanites. They got to rub shoulders with the Canaanites. I mean, they're going to have Canaanites as neighbors. They're going to have Canaanites as co-workers. They're going to go to the gym and work out with Canaanites. Their kids are going to be play soccer with other Canaanite kids. And so this is what's going on. The Canaanites evidently began to talk to the Israelites about their gods. Maybe at that time in history, you know, it wasn't off limits in dinner parties, right? So they would talk about their other gods. Now understand, the Canaanites, they had a personal God. They had a family God, but they also had a national God. Now this is kind of the way that they they tricked Israel. This is the way they deceived Israel. They would say things to the Israelites like, hey, we understand that you have a national God. We understand his name is Jehovah, seems like a really nice guy. We get that. We have a national God too. But then they would say, you know what? You also need a personal God and you also need a family God. And over time, the Canaanites, they convinced, they deceived the Israelites into believing that they needed Asherah as their personal God and they needed Baal to be their family God. And so even though God went through great lengths to to, to warn the Israelites about what they needed to avoid. And what he wanted them to avoid in the promised land, it happened anyway. And that's why if you've ever read the Old Testament, you'll notice all the way through that the Hebrew people, the Jews, they built the Asherah poles. They, 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 built, they built the idols for Baal. But my point is simply this, in spite of the warning that God gave them, they were deceived. And we're going to see this weekend that even though God warns us not to have any idols or any images in our lives, often we're deceived and we fall into the same trap that the Israelites fell into. Let me just show you some verses about what the Israelites experienced. Judges chapter 3 verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. In other words, they adopted their personal God and they adopted their family God. There's another example, 1 Kings chapter 18. This is the prophet Elijah speaking. Now summon the people from all over Israel. This is that great showdown on Mount Carmel. Summon the people from all of Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Now notice this next phrase, who eat at Jezebel's table. Why is that significant? Because Jezebel is married to a guy named Ahab. Ahab is the king of Israel at this time. So these prophets are literally eating at the king's table. So understand, these idols, these images, they have now become a part of Israel's culture. By the way, do you remember when Moses was meeting with God up on the mountain and God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments? I mean, he's going through the Ten Commandments. You shall have never God before me. Moses, that's number one. And then maybe he said, here's number two. Don't make any carved images. This is what I want you to understand. 
While God is giving Moses all of this information, the children of Israel, think about this, they're at the bottom of the mountain, and guess what they're doing? They're making two golden calves. They collected all of the gold jewelry and they smelted it down and they made two golden calves and they're shouting, these are the gods, these are the calves. Now think about this, they've just made them. These are the calves that brought us out of Egypt. I mean, think about that, how stupid is that? While God is up on the mountain telling Moses, don't have any idols, don't have any carved images, they're down at the bottom of the mountain making carved images. By the way, let me tell you something else. The Canaanites believed that all of their gods lived in heaven, but they believed that when they carved an image, and that's how you made an idol, they believed that when they actually carved an image, the God that was in heaven would put his spirit, her spirit, in that image, in that idol. And then they would take, say, the image out into the field to bless their crop, or maybe they would put the image of fertility in their bedroom that would allow them to conceive, or or maybe they would take the image that represented their favorite sports team to the arena to make sure that their team won. But it was about the idea that the spirit of of the God or the power of the God rested in these carved images. Now, let me ask you a question, and maybe you've never thought about this. Where did the... Canaanites come up with this idea of idols or carved images that somehow the spirit of the God would be in these images? Well, the answer to that question is they got it from Satan. So let me ask you another question. Where does Satan get that idea? Well, he stole it from God. In fact, he got it from the fact that he knew that God fashioned an image of himself on earth, that would be us, and he put his spirit in us. You remember what God said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? He said this, let us make man in our image. So understand, that's why there doesn't need to be another image of God on this earth. If you're a Christian, if I am a Christian, you are the image of God. I am the image of God, and God has put his spirit in us. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Mike, of all the commandments, what does this have to do with us? I have never ever been into another Christian's home and they had a carved image on their mantelpiece or they, they, they had an idol on their mantelpiece. Why is this important to us? Well, you know what? It may be more relevant than you think. For example, take this word image. The word image is the root of the word imagination. And I mentioned that because, see, when you live in a, say, fantasy world, you are living with imaginations that are competing with what God wants to happen in your life, what God has planned for your life. For example, maybe you have a bad marriage. And so you find yourself imagining what it would be like to be married to another person. That would be having an image. Uh, Maybe you imagine yourself living in another job or living in another house or maybe performing another job. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what? I, I can't be content until I get this promotion. I can't be content in life until I get this title or this position. I'm not gonna be able to be content in life until I get this salary. In other words, instead of appreciating and embracing what God is doing in your life, what God has for you in your life, you've replaced them with these imaginations. Here's my point. When you begin to imagine yourself in a situation other than what God has provided for you, you have created an idol. You have created an image. And as a result, see, you're never, ever content. 
As a result, you're never satisfied in life. And see, this is just one of the consequences. This is just one of the dangers of breaking the second commitment, this idea of having an image other than God. Because when you have an image other than God in your life, it competes with your loyalty to God. And God knew that eventually you will end up serving and giving time to that image. And eventually that image, what you're fascinated with, it will take you in to bondage. But I want you to notice how Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 continues. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. And you discover why this is so important to God if you continue reading verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing, this, this is tough, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's a scary verse. In fact, Laura and I were having dinner with a couple this week, and we were talking about the message that was going to be coming up this weekend, and I mentioned this verse, and the guy that we were having dinner with, he said, that verse scares me. That verse scares me that somehow my sins, the things that I've done in my life, are going to be passed down to my children and my grandchildren. But what does this verse really mean? Well, let me just point out a, first, a few things. First of all, understand this is written to people who hate God. The last part of that verse says, uh, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it's written to people who hate God. It's not written to people who love God. By the way, in just a moment, you're gonna see what God does for people who love him. In fact, you're gonna see God's grace is spread all throughout the Old Testament. But here's the second thing I wanna point out about this verse. This Hebrew word that's translated punishing, that's the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible. It's the Bible that most of you use. This is also translated, this very same word translated in the Hebrew punishing is also translated visiting all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, this is what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. I am a jealous God, not punishing, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children. Well, that's a big difference. There's a big difference between this idea of punishing and visiting. For example, when you're just visiting, you're not inhabiting. When you're just visiting, you're not setting up house. You're just visiting. I mean, if your in-laws call and say, we're going to stop by for the weekend, it's not that bad. They're not moving in with you. They're just visiting. So understand this word visiting, it's not only more accurate, it's actually more encouraging. So let me just give you an example how this could have actually happened in the Old Testament, this idea of God visiting the children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Understand, at this time in Israel's history in the Old Testament, it wasn't unusual for families to live together, like a third generation, down to a second, third, fourth generation. Not unusual at all. In fact, if you ever go to Israel with me, you will meet my guide, Eris. Every time we go to Israel, that's who, that's who leads us around Israel. He actually lives together with all of his family. His parents, his grandparents, they all live together today. Several generations sharing the same property. Now, let me just give you a hypothetical situation. I've never met Eris's. I've met his parents, but I've never met his grandparents. And all. I'm not, so, so this is totally hypothetical. Let's say that Eris's grandfather was an alcoholic. 
Let's say that every time the family was together, every day he was drunk all the time. I mean, the reality is it would influence that entire family. That is just a natural consequence of sin. For example, let me give you another illustration. If you're young parents, you know, and you just kind of party all the time, you get together with your neighbors and party all the time, and, and, and you, you go play golf and you party all the time, and your kids witness this lifestyle, I can promise you this, they're going to party all the time too. Do you know why? You've been their role model. You've been their example. In fact, I can promise you this. Not only are they going to do it, they're going to start much earlier than you did. It's the natural consequence of sin. If you do it and your kids see it and they think it's okay, they're going to do it in their life. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you following what I'm saying? And so God says, listen, this is going to happen. If there's sin, it's going to be passed down to the third, the fourth generation. Now, why would God even allow this? Well, he gives us the reason in verse five. He says, I'm a jealous God. And what God is saying here is, I am jealous for your affection. So I'm gonna do everything I can to get your affection. I'm gonna do everything I can to win you over, to win your affection. But see, to even understand that, you have to understand this word jealousy. Because I think in our culture, in most circumstances, we think of jealousy, jealousy is a bad thing. It's seen in a negative light. And jealousy is bad because usually you're jealous for another person because of selfish reasons. But there is a good jealousy. And good jealousy is when you love somebody so much, you just don't want anything bad to happen to them. And I'm telling you, in the same way, God, all throughout the Old Testament says, I am so jealous for Israel. He wasn't saying, I hate Israel. He wasn't saying, I'm frustrated so much. I'm angry at Israel right now. This is what he was saying. He was saying, I don't want anything bad to happen to them. So let's go back to that question. Why would God visit the sins of the parents on the children and the grandchildren? Well, it's so that the sin that they've had to live with, the sin that they've had to observe, witness, the sin that has impacted their life, it's going to frustrate them in such a way that one day they'll see the consequences. They'll see the destruction that was caused by that sin, and they will decide, you know what? I'm not going to pursue comfort. I'm not going to pursue satisfaction. I'm not going to pursue a joy in that kind of behavior. I'm not going to follow in the steps of my parents and grandparents in that lifestyle. I'm going to pursue comfort. I'm going to pursue satisfaction. I'm going to pursue joy in a relationship with God. By the way, they had a saying in Israel because of how they misinterpreted this commandment. This was a saying, a son shall die for the sins of his father. It's kind of like us saying like father, like son. A son shall die for the sins of his father. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, and I doubt probably any of you have read Ezekiel this week, right? But in Ezekiel chapter 18, God comes along and says, stop that. Stop saying that. That's not the kind of God I am. I am a just God. Let me just show it to you. Ezekiel chapter 18, again, it's a hypothetical situation. 
and it talks about a guy who's a really, really bad dude, okay? He has done a lot of bad stuff. This this would be like an Epstein. This would be like a Bernie Madoff. This would be like a Weinstein. All these guys together. And as a result of this man's action, it says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 13, will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all of these detestable things, he is to be put to death. His blood, notices, will be on his own head. But suppose this son, okay, and this is a reference to the bad guy, the bad dude. Suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such thing. Ezekiel 18, verse 17. He, a reference to the son, will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. And what it's saying is this. It's saying God steps in and says, listen, you have a choice whether or not you want to follow and continue in your daddy's evil ways. You have a choice. I'll give you an example. My grandfather was an alcoholic. I don't know that I ever saw my grandfather, my dad's dad, I don't know that I ever saw him sober. Uh, There were times we would not even go to the house because we knew that he would always be intoxicated. That is the environment that my dad grew up in. Well, my dad was one of six children. And because my grandfather was such a severe alcoholic, that obviously impacted his life so much so that when my dad was in the eighth grade, he literally had to drop out of school and get a job. I think he became a meat cutter so that he could help support the family. But as a result of growing up in that environment, growing up with that lifestyle, my dad, who'll be 92 next month, think about this, he has never had a drop of alcohol in his life. In fact, this is one of my favorite pictures of my dad. This is the end of World War II. My dad's the furthest on the right. They're in Germany together, and you'll notice he's with his Air Force squadron, and you can notice all the beer steins, the beer mugs, and all the beer that they're drinking. But I want you to zero in, if you could, on my dad, and you'll notice he's holding a Coke. He's toasting with a Coke. That's how he responded to that generational sin. In fact, growing up, because of my grandfather and the impact of his alcoholism that it had on my dad, we, growing up, never had a drop of alcohol in our life. Do you know why? It's because my dad saw the devastation. My dad saw the destruction that it caused and he decided I'm going to break that generational curse because I can tell you this, if that trend isn't broken, the consequences can be severe and they they will be passed down. So, so far we've seen the, the, the dangers of impurity We've seen the consequences of tainting our relationship with God. But what are the blessings of purity? Let's think about the positive for a second. Notice what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing, we now know the word visiting, the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandment. It's interesting, that word showing there, but showing love, that same word showing in the Hebrew, sometimes it's translated fashioning. Sometimes it's translated accomplishing. Sometimes it's translated preparing. Other times it's translated anointing. Other times it's translated producing. So I I want you to think about that verse this way. 
What, what, what God is saying in this commandment is this. If you will obey this commandment, if you will keep your relationship with me pure, if you don't taint our relationship with other imaginations and other images, it says God is going to fashion love for you. He's going to accomplish love for you. He's going to prepare love for you. He's going to appoint love for you. He's going to ordain love for you. He's going to bring about and produce mercy and love and blessing all over your life and not just you. He says all over your descendants for a thousand generations. I mean, how cool is that? That's so much cooler than God just giving us a bunch of rules that say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He says, oh, but let me tell you the blessings if you do it. It's the principle of purity. It's the benefits of keeping our relationship with God pure and not tainting it with images and idols and things that divide our loyalty with God. I mean, so many times we read the Old Testament and all we see is judgment and law and harshness, and rules. But I'm telling you, it is all for relationship. It's all for good. My point this weekend is simply this. God doesn't want you to walk and live in impurity. He doesn't want me to walk and live in impurity because he knows at the end of the day, not only is it going to impact and affect our relationship with him, he knows that it's going to impact and affect our relationship with others. And God wants to have a pure relationship with us. He wants us to have a pure relationship with one another. Let me tell you how this commandment impacted my life. As I was working through this, you know, I've never had a carved image on my mantle. But as I said, we all, if we really do our homework and if we really open up our lives and look inside, you know what we'll determine? There's some idols there that struggle. <laughs> Puts a struggle in our lives, but who, who's going to sit on the throne of our life, that idol, or, or is it going to be God? And you know, what I, you know what God pointed out to me as I was working on this sermon? That my idol had been you. My idol had been Hope Community Church. Now, I didn't mean it to be that way. But the reality was when we moved here to start the church because of the busyness and the energy, and I'm not making excuses, I'm just explaining why, that it took, it became my idol. And in many times, getting this church up and running and ministering to this church and meeting the needs of the people in this church, it took precedence over my relationship with God. And it tainted that. But this is what I realized. My boys are grown men now. And they have struggles just like everybody has struggles. But I realized that part of the struggles they have is a result of my relationship with God being tainted and passing that down to them. So I told you guys recently we went on a cruise and our family went together. And I had an incredible opportunity to do something with my boys on that cruise during the week, I got them together separately. And one, I confessed what had, I had done. Second, I asked them for their forgiveness. And this is what's interesting. Both of them separate, both of them said, when I said, 
I didn't give you the attention. I didn't do some of the things that I should have done with you as a father because I was so busy with an idol called Hope Community Church. And this is what, how they both responded separately. They didn't say, oh, no, Dad, you were fine. Don't worry about it. No, this is what they both said. We know. We know. We realized that other dads were doing things with their boys that you weren't doing through us. There were rites of passages and things that they were doing that you weren't doing for us. And naturally, because they're my boys and they do love their dad, they forgave me. But it was a great opportunity for me to sit down and talk with them and say, listen, I passed some of this on to you. And in some ways, I'm sure it's impacted your life. But you don't have to pass that down to your children. You can break that generational sin. That's what I'm saying this weekend. If there's an idol in your life that's making your relationship with God impure, that's tainting your relationship with God, get it out of your life. Because this is what's happening. Instead of giving your undevoted time to God, you're giving undevoted time to that image. Instead of having devoted loyalty to God, now your loyalty is being split. Instead of giving God all of your attention and seeking his heart with all of your might, you're seeking this image and how it brings happiness. And you know what? Just like with Hope Community Church, it doesn't have to be a bad thing to be an idol. For some of you, your career is your idol. If you're honest, if you're honest, it plays a bigger role in your life than God does. For some of you young families, it's your kid. I mean, if you were honest, you would say, my kids sit on the throne of my life. And you think you're doing this for their good, but you're gonna find out later on that it's actually gonna hurt them. Could be a hobby, could be a habit, could be money. How about this? I know people who so love the theology of the Bible, they've made the Bible an idol. In other words, they care more about theology and the Bible than they do about the God of the Bible. I know people who are so blown away by the spiritual gift that God has given them, they're more in love with their spiritual gift than they are with the God who gave them their spiritual gift. I would encourage you this week, and maybe you have some extra time, to sit down and really examine yourself before God and say, God, what is that? What is that image in my life that I'm worshiping that's keeping me from being fully devoted to you? You know, we're sitting here like this this weekend because so many are freaked out by the coronavirus. You know, we're isolating ourselves. We're keeping ourselves to a little group. And there are empty stadiums and coliseums and there are empty churches this weekend because we're so freaked out by this virus. Let me ask you a question. What if we applied the same sense of urgency to keeping our relationship with God pure and untainted as we did to the coronavirus and making sure that we don't get infected. You know I'm loving you, but take care of the idols in your life. Not because God's mad at you, but because he loves you and he's jealous for you. And he wants your best. And he doesn't want things to harm your life. And he just desires a pure relationship with you. Now, next week, we're going to talk about 
that commandment that talks about not taking the Lord's name in vain, or if you have the NIV, it says don't misuse God's name. And let me just say this. If you ever respond on social media, OMG, you may need to be listening in next week. We're going to talk about that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Father, this is a crazy world we live in now. I'm 63 years old. I've never experienced hysteria like this. And there are times I'm like, is it the media causing the hysteria? Is there some kind of agenda causing the hysteria? Is it a legitimate hysteria? It doesn't really matter. It is what it is. And we have to deal with it accordingly. Father, I pray that during this time, you would just remind us that you are the God of all creation. That you sit on the throne. That you're never out of date. You're not threatened by technology. Nothing ever gets by you unnoticed. And we are right where you have ordained us to be in this moment. In our process of fear and worry and anxiety. May we also take that time to discover, God, how are you speaking to me? And what is it that I need to work on in my life? And God, we, we know that in due time this will pass. And in due time you will bring healing. But while you have us in this crisis, my Father, I just pray that we would, we would just, we'd just focus our attention on you and see what you have and see what we can learn. Help us to clean out our lives of any images that prohibit us from fully 100% being devoted to you. And through your son, we give you the credit for what you're going to do. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us here online. Listen, if there's anything that we can do for you as a church community, if you're looking to connect with others in a small group, if you want to take a step and jump onto a ministry team, or even if you just have some questions or looking for prayer, uh, you can find all of that stuff on our website. You can find those next steps at gethope.net. Find what you need. Reach out to us. We would love to help you in any way that we can. Listen, we know there's a lot of craziness going on in the world right now. What the world needs is a group of people that's going to go out and love the world around them right where they are. So let's go out this week. Let's be the church. Let's live out our vision. We want to reach the triangle and change the world. And we'll get back together next week online and celebrate again. We'll see you then.